Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Daniel Hinden. Um, Daniel is the founder and CEO of OfixU, an online marketplace that allows its users to rent any type of workspace for any kind of work. Um, Daniel, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Good morning and thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme, Daniel. I did say we were recording this on an autumn day. We're actually in spring, but it does feel like autumn, doesn't it, with the uh, the weather that we've had over the course of the, uh, the last few weeks. Um, it does but, indeed. But just before we um, sort of get into the bare bones of um, the rest of our discussion, I think we should address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that we are recording this amid the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've been in the grip of that crisis for the best part of the last 14 months. So, um how has this whole situation affected you and your business over the course of this previous year? Well, first and foremost, um, still feels a bit like winter uh, mm. to me, but um, with the rainfall that we've had, but looking forward to some uh, good weather uh, at the end of this week. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, year on year um, and looking back at 2020, um, the COVID-19 outbreak, had a significant impact on our industry. Uh, indeed, the first quarter of 2020 was particularly uh, difficult. And then, of course, you know, as things started to progress, um, all sorts of companies and industries were working out uh, ways to pivot and uh, hybridize their lives around their relevant industries. Um, in the in the workspace sector, which is what I'm involved in, um, many companies had to reposition their uh, staff, both from a location point of view, but also in terms of how did their current um, overhead costs and you know uh, real estate uh, impact them. And, and what we found was that where a lot of people did want to work from home and found themselves uh, comfortable doing so, it wasn't something that they could continue to do uh, efficiently 24-7, you know, if you've got mm. kids around at home or if you've got certain distractions, it just wasn't conducive for everybody to be stuck working from home. Um, so around about the middle of 2020, Afixu being the um, sort of pioneer of uh, monetizing underused workspaces, um, our, our business model actually sort of had a violent shove in the right direction because of the pandemic. Now, um, Traditionally, companies would take long leases or serviced or managed options. Our business, what we were set about doing and always were planning to do, um, was help uh, companies uh, earn extra income on otherwise underused spaces. So I, I, I actually had, a, as, as the founder of Afixu, had a bit of an epiphany uh, during the summer of uh, last year. Mm. And I thought to myself, hmm, uh, before the pandemic, 25% of people worked remotely but couldn't access on-demand workspaces. Now that number, due to the pandemic, had crept up to, well, actually, uh, hockey stick when, you know, in terms of the curve, um, it went up to 72% of people 
working from home. Now, our biggest moment last year for the for the um, uh, for the business really was around sort of June, July, because although the lockdowns were starting to lift, and there were, if you remember, there were those moments between lockdowns where people were expected to go back to work somehow. Mm. We noticed that the uh, number of people working from home was sort of settled down to around about forty five percent, which was a great moment for our business because pre the pandemic. Pre the pandemic, 25% of people was a good, you know, sort of target market for us to go at in terms of, you know, evangelizing our concept, you know, letting workers know that they can access and tap into uh, flexible on-demand products. But it wasn't as big as as, uh, as the middle part of last year. So I really had an epiphany and I, and I felt that that moment in our business was, was pivotal for the future. Now, if we look at post-pandemic, where we are sort of, you know, getting towards now, um, I expect, you know, looking at the different numbers out there, that the number of people working from home and, let's say, a conducive workspace uh, two or three days a week, um, I think that that's sort of going to settle down to around about 35% uh, of, the, of the working world. So, you know, I think what people have done and, you know, sort of um, just sort of summarize all of this is that I think people have discovered a way of uh, not being tied to one particular uh, workplace environment, be that at home or be that in a hybridized, you know, flexible workspace. And I think that that's a great discovery to have, both for wellness, well-being, um, you know, re- removing huge overhead costs from a business. You know, I was talking to someone last week and they, they were saying that their, their, their rent was 3.2 million a year, um, which is just unfathomable. I mean, you know, what, what a massive cost that is. And, you know, I just think that there is a definite new wave now, sorry for that expression, um, a new wave of those that want to split working some of their week from home, you know, so you can see your kids, see your families, you know, reduce your commuting time and commuting costs and sort of couple that, you know, tie that with a couple of days in the office, you know, to check in with colleagues and do your 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 weekly um, catch up. So I think my experience of the pandemic is that the first half of last year was excruciating not only for the industry but for ourselves. But as that second half approached, quite a, a pivotal moment, I must say. Uh, and the future looks really promising uh, for Work 2.0. It's good, isn't it? Uh, because um, we've, we've really seen, haven't we, that um, there are some aspects of the lockdown period that will remain in the business world um, and how we operate in this country once we move out of, um, of course, the uh, the COVID period. And flexible working certainly is one of those. And having seen sort of innovation pivoting at an unprecedented scale, it seems that your business has really sort of cottoned onto an opportunity there. And of course, when there is a crisis like this, there will still be opportunities as the work environment changes. And that's really sort of held you in good stead for the future? I suppose so, yes. I mean, look, when I uh, came up with the concept back in 2014, really, um, my thoughts were, well, you know, the, the, the way that people uh, work has changed. You know, plenty of um, entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, we call them solopreneurs, um, you know, uh, could and, and should, uh, you know, carve out their own 
uh, territories in their own industries. You know, the corporate world has probably suffered a lot the last 10 years with, with the spring of uh, entrepreneurs. But me being one of those, you know, and, and working with so many entrepreneurs, um, I'm, I'm only too aware of, you know, um, disruption to industries that needed a good shakeup. And if I'm honest with you, the traditional office market being tied up in red tape, you know, five to 10 year leases, um, I, I think something needed to change. And, you know, my hopes were pre-pandemic that 25% of people working remotely was a big enough target market for us to go after. You know, 4.9 million um, people in the UK employed just the owner, which is essentially a clever uh, way of saying um, they are solopreneurs. Then that's, that's a, a good argument to start looking at how people can access workspace on demand. Now, when you look at teams, you know, startups that work uh, locally, you know, if, if let's say you and two or three of your friends uh, wanted to get together and build a startup, would you have the money um, or the sort of patience to tie up to a 12-month minimum term contract in the first year of your business? My uh, guess would be that you wouldn't want to do that. You'd probably want to cohort together on a local basis, reduce your cost down by a good 75%. But more importantly, time is precious. And, you know, if you can reduce one and a half hours commute every day, then that's adding one and a half hours to your business. You know, yeah. I think, yes, I think we, we saw an opportunity um, pre the pandemic. The pandemic itself, itself, um, uh, sort of uh, catalyzed our business model. Mm. And I think coming out of it, you know, we, we still need to be careful. There's many traditionalists out there that want to reverse, uh, you know, reverse the course of time and take ourselves back to 2019. But I just don't see that happening, uh, at least not for the next 12 months. So in answer to your question or comment, I should say, I think we have been somewhat lucky. Uh, it's still a lot of hard work for us to do to keep evangelizing that not only can people earn income on unused workspaces, but that the world can access those spaces, just like if you were using Airbnb being the sort of analogy, if that makes sense. And when it comes to sort of leadership of teams that are sort of scattered around and you have to sort of keep everything going from a distance and sort of trust your employees to be productive, um, how do you sort of find that from your point of view? Do you find that an easy way of running the business? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny juxtaposition in a way because um, I have always prided my management skills as being motivational more than anything else. And I think dealing with colleagues that are remote or based from home, especially when you're trying to sell office space and you know, you're know you sort of evangelizing that people should go back to the office, but we ourselves are not in an office. It's, it's a funny one. But, but be that as it may, um, I think my main sort of uh, skill sets managers always been to motivate people. So if you can find those good, you know, you can find the good talent and, and that they're reliable and resourceful, I think, you know, that's been the sort of proof point for us over the last year is how do you keep people interested? How do you keep people motivated um, in, a, in an industry that's clearly had uh, some suffering, but, but, you know, keeping on at the big prize, which is we're now coming into a moment where, um, you know, through no fault of its own, the world has now got to uh, shapeshift itself around workspace. And I think I'm constantly educating my colleagues and they're educating me as well on what does the working world look like, what do people want, 
what do people not want? Um, and I think now is a very exciting time for us. So anybody joining the company should be rather enthusiastic about it. But yes, last year was very difficult because, you know, uh, if we weren't able to do in-person tours, we had to encourage people to do virtual tours. But, mm. you know, we still managed to get through that as an objective and, and find ways around doing things. So I think as long as one can be, you know, able uh, to, you know, diversify themselves and their business and, and not get stuck and fixed on on things that used to work and be prepared for change, then, you know, I, I suppose that's what we're about, you know, being motivational and, and sort of um, adaptable and agile in an industry that's very fixed to the ground. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, what what the next year looks like for us is, is that um, it's a bit of a mix. You know, you've got serviced operators like Regis and WeWork that are, doing rather well right now by the sounds of it in terms of occupancy levels but there's still so many uh, leased buildings you know banks that we're talking to at the moment for example where in one case they've got 8,000 square feet how do I get my team enthusiastic about selling that well you know it is an exciting opportunity that we can be the ones to you know monetize um, space uh, and uh, you know show people how to how to uh, access spaces they've never seen before. You know, it, it, I'll ask you the question, would you yourself, um, you know, would you like to go and access an office space that let's say is a, a part of um, Apple's London head office? You know, you might say yes. You might mm. say, no, I'd rather work in a Starbucks. And we would say, well, is that conducive for you? You know, so it's just it's just building out a uh, whole new territory of properties and, and, and showing people that there is more that exists than they realise. What I will say as well is the one thing you did mention is the importance of this marketplace to the work-life balance as well and giving people that option. Just thinking about that for a moment, the whole issue around mental health has really been amplified, hasn't it, by the pandemic as a whole. So um, how have you found it managing that side of things have people sort of found themselves struggling during this time you found within your business definitely Definitely. and you know even now there's still whiplash i call it whiplash because the resurgence of the workforce is one thing but people want to take on so much so quickly i'm very mindful of that you know i worked in the corporate world 22 years ago at muse international i worked on popular titles such as the times and sunday times uh, I loved my job and I did it six days a week. And I realized that I needed time out for myself. Now, you and I both know that 20 odd years ago, um, the traditional working world wasn't as inclusive of, let's say, mindfulness and wellness as it now is. Mm. You know, only last week I took a, a client out to see a workspace that had a sort of subterranean caged gym in the basement, which is something to behold. You know, when, when I saw. Uh, the resident uh, companies, uh, you know, there must have been about 20 people in, the, in this uh, in this gym, in, in this building, uh, provided by a very well-known uh, workspace operator. And uh, I just thought, how fantastic is that? You know, a couple of decades ago, it was, well, why are you one minute late from lunch? Or, you know, you're here till six o'clock on the dot, don't you? And, you know, it was all of that kind of environment that made work very stressful. Current um, stress of work is is about what does today and tomorrow look like and you know certainly colleagues of mine 
uh, had moments where, you know, I thought, <clears throat> how am I going to get them out of this thinking, which is, you know, that the market isn't moving yet. And, you know, we're not Amazon and we're not Tesco's and we're not, you know, riding it to the moon with, you know, 400% uh, revenue increases year on year. Some industries were severely impacted. And I suppose that, um, you know, we're not quite on the level of travel, tourism, and, you know, uh, and sort of uh, international flights, but uh, maybe one level up, you know, because we're talking about, um, you know, people and footfall in spaces. You know, everything that has a space or a seat was affected. Um, and although the working world was uh, you know, if if you were able to go back to work, you should go back to work. You know, it was it was very ambiguous the um, information coming out of the government, understandably so. Mm. But um, I think the sort of anxiety now for for staff and you know in, certainly industry wise is um, what's what's my you know what's expected of me now. You know what what mm. the, what the bosses expect me to do. If you're Goldman Sachs, well, the CEO of Goldman Sachs wants a hundred percent. Uh, you know, return to work for all, for all staff, and that's because they need to have that kind of um, hype and you know, um, uh, sort of uh, manic <laughs> environment about them. But that might not be true of designers and um, you know, companies with with other uh, skill sets. Mm. Um, so where we sort of fall into as, as a business is actually we can we could operate this business off laptops on a beach, but. Um, for, the, for those that want to get back to work, we're in a great position because we felt it, you know, as much as, um, you know, companies will, will say, you know, these are our needs and, you know, this is what we want. We, we, we know what customers want. We've been forced to work from home as well. We know how much people want a new office. So I think the empathetic value of what our people can bring to the argument of, of returning to work is, is one that, you know, w- will help our customers to decide you know, in a re- real and truthful way, what what's a good workplace strategy for them? You know, whereas, you know, we, we still um, endorse working from home, but we, we, we sort of say, look, can you do that sustained sustainably week in, week out? Is it good for your mental health even to be at home 24-7? There's so many arguments from whichever standpoint you're at, but luckily we've been through that standpoint as, as a team ourselves. We've been nomadic. We've been working from home. We've been based out of the city-centric office throughout the life cycle of the last seven years of this business to know how each of those archetypes looks and feels. And I must say, I think coming out of it where we are right now is there's a lot more understanding, both for our, my colleagues and myself internally. You know, if, if you need a day off, fully understand that it's been a stressful week. But, but the bottom line is, I think what the world needs to just be careful of uh, not doing is too much too soon. So I suppose how that sort of works its way into the office sector mm. is that providers are very happy to give flexible agreements on contracts. If you want just a three-month minimum term, you could pretty much get that right now. A year ago, minimum 12 months. So I think just some total of all of that is that uh, in most industries, everyone's had to be flexible. That's the key word at the moment i think the buzzword you know uh, hybridization and flexibility i think that's but absolutely right yeah but certainly mental health which is uh you know certainly um you know uh, it, it's uh 
something that we all need to be careful of. You know, it's not doing too much too soon. And, and I think, you know, what better position to be in than to hybridize your workplace right now, not just because of the pandemic, but because I actually think people need bedding in a bit, a bit rather than rushing back and getting that, you know, full bums on seats, if you will. Mm. And one thing that so many people that I've spoken to on this program over the last year have said, particularly entrepreneurs, business executives, is that they've learned so much from this crisis um, about pivoting, about adapting themselves, and they've learned more about themselves as people and about the people that they work with, their colleagues. Now, thinking about learning, you've already talked about the epiphany that you've had. So it's clear that you have learned an awful lot from this experience. But my question is, Daniel, would you say that as a result of this experience, you're a stronger business leader than say you were 14 months ago? Yeah, you know what? I I heard people talking about this reset button and I didn't really like the uh, expression at all because, you know, free will is something that we all have. Mm. And um, what, what I discovered about myself was that you know, if I'd have taken everything I'd read seriously, um, I'd be beholden to when I could return to work, how much I could work. And I think the biggest discovery from all of this is like the resilience factor, really, because, you know, when, when you know, some, I hate to say it, but there, there are lots of different, um, you know, people out there with different circumstances. Some mm-hmm. people have been sat on salaries for the last year working from home. When I say sat on, I mean, I I don't wish to sound uh, rude or condescending, but others haven't had that uh, sort of uh, safety blanket of a salary. Mm. Some some people are self-employed. Some people are, you know, working for charities. You know, trying to take into consideration all types of people is something that, that, that I've sort of woken up with, which is that... Whichever way you look at it, everyone was caught at home at one point, and that kind of reduced everyone down to ground zero. Maybe not financially, but in terms of the sort of you know um, structure of one's day, you know how much uh, you're doing activity-wise. We've all been in it together, and if you remember during the pandemic year, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Statement. I mean, if I'm honest, it's something I'd like to have seen pulled through uh, in the return to work. Is that uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are out of work. A lot of people need jobs. Thanks to the government gateway scheme, um, including ourselves, we've managed to hire some brilliant talent uh, via that channel. And I just think the total um, sort of um, feeling on all of this is that is that we, we, we need to be more uh, inclusive of, of one another, be more understanding. Um, because, you know, industry and work is is business is business. I get that. It, it seems black and white to many. Um, but at the same time, there's so many um, people out there that, that see work as, um, as a pleasure. You know, it doesn't have to be that it's so black and white. Mm. Um, and, and I think whilst that's the case, it's, it's so good to be able to nurture uh, great results from colleagues and, and clients that it's done through, um, you know, love, care and fun just doesn't need to be so hard-nosed. And um, and I kind of think that's what, what I've learned. And I think a lot of people I know have learned is that uh, whereas, you know, emotion and feeling didn't really play a part 20 years ago, I think we now embrace that better than we ever did before. And that's only been helped by, um, you know, the, the togetherness displayed during the pandemic. I, I think we should be a lot more supportive of one another post this pandemic. And for me, that's what I'm hopeful for. 
Mm. Hopefully so. And um, I would like to talk about the uh, the future in a little bit more detail just before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time. Um, we talked a little bit about what the marketplace for you could look like over the course of this uh, co- this coming few months. But with regards to the next year as a whole, what is it at Ofix You as a business that you're really hoping to achieve over the next year? Well, that's um, a brilliant question. You know, there's a kaleidoscope of property types on our platform, everything from, uh, you know, a beach uh, co-working space that listed last week through to a single floor, a skyscraper, uh, single desks or full banks of desks. You know, we we don't, we are not a broker or an agency. And that's the clear thing about Fixu, which I hope makes us look very different and welcomed by uh, the the industries that, we're any type of workspace for any type of work. You should be able to, um, you know, be able to, you know, book on demand workspaces just like you're booking a holiday. It really shouldn't be that difficult. Mm. Um, and, it, and it should be able to be a desk for a day, week, month, or a year. Um, so I think my hope for this year coming is that we'll see many more, um, you know, unique uh, and exclusive uh, property types come onto the platform, um, that we will see a lot more. Uh, fluidity with people moving around spaces without being fixed to one particular workspace or, you know, tied up in any red tape. Um, and that, that we are effectively leading that um, disruption, which we set out to do pre the pandemic, but in a way that's even more relevant. So that's what I'm hopeful for the next year. Many more uh, exciting and unique workspaces dropping onto the platform and many people um booking on demand, you know, as freely as they would book a holiday, I suppose. So changing working environments, isn't it? And I think that does mean exciting times ahead for Fix You for sure. And I think that as we start to see things sort of taking shape a little bit more and really understanding what is to come in that sense, it'd be great, Daniel, to catch up and have you back on the show just to see how some of your ambitions are really starting to take shape. Well, I hope I can live up to your uh audience's expectations and certainly as a business we'd love to join you again thank you so much i've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show today it's been a real eye-opening experience for myself and i'm sure the listeners share that sentiment as well and um do of course continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on and to you too and thank you very much thanks ever so much daniel um Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be hearing from 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, he's a legend here in England, as well as, of course, amongst West Ham and Stoke City fans for his time in league football. But he is most well-known to Jeff for that hat-trick that he scored on that fateful day at Wembley in 1966, which won England the Jewel Romay Trophy. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? 
I wanted to bury it. Um, I, I've asked that question. I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record, and goodness me, that's how it's nearly sixty years, I guess. If, if uh, we're looking at two thousand and twenty-two, no, I'd wanted to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody, I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved. Uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about 
COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, 
or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic players. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into the coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play 
you um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to, a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. 
the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about. I, I kind of put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, 
bench is one of the world class players, where along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves doesn't play with a world class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a world cup some world class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, we, it was a great time with the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played eight actually the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and I uh, enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the... That kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know. Being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.